We're in John 13 today, so if you brought a Bible, please turn there with me, and if not, there should be one underneath the seat in front of you. You can look up John 13 there. This morning, we're starting a, um, another series in the book of John. This one will last eight weeks, Lord willing. We'll be journeying together through John 13 all the way through John 17. This is what, um, if you pick up a a commentary or some kind of theological book on this part of John, they'll call it the Farewell Discourse. Uh, That is theologian geek talk for final speech. So this is the final speech of Jesus uh, and his final interactions with the disciples leading up to his arrest, trial, crucifixion, and resurrection. If you stop for a minute and think about the amount of time John spends on that section, it's rather staggering. Those five chapters make up about 25% of the entire book, and they only cover a few hours. We're talking Thursday evening. So that must mean this portion is really significant for God's people to know. So we're going to journey our way through it and hopefully learn a lot together about what took place the night before Jesus met his death. For the next eight weeks, we'll be covering, honestly, what I think is some of the most precious and powerful words in the whole Bible. And our prayer as elders has been that you would be encouraged in them greatly. We're with the start of John 13, roughly 15 to 18 hours away from the crucifixion. Jesus has his 12 uh, disciples, the 12 closest to him that he's been grooming to plant churches and write the rest of the New Testament after he leaves, are all together in a room, and he's there to teach them some incredibly important things. Now, Jesus is the only one in the room that's not really confused. He's the only one in the room that knows what's going to happen. And so the things he will say... And the way in which John will repeat this event as someone who had been there will be hugely significant to us to understand. Jesus knew what was coming. Nothing about his death caught him off guard, down to the intricate details of who would reject him and who would follow him. As Jesus uses these final moments, we get to see his heart in ways perhaps uh, unique in the entire biblical story, to understand the depth of his love for us. So I hope that you will be deeply um, renewed today in your love for the Lord as we consider the story together. Luca and Caleb, two students in the youth ministry, are going to come read for us. So come on up, guys. It will be in John 13. 1 through 30. What did you do? I didn't see anything clapworthy. <laughs> you just walked up. Yeah. This takes, is amazing. We've got to have these guys up more often. Yeah. All right, brothers, would you read for us? Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that this hour, that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. 
he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash, except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him, and that was why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, and you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example, that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at a at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. (laughs) Thank you, guys. Uh, This chapter is one of those sections in the Bible that you can read once, observe the basic facts, feel like you've got it, and then move on. But if you go back and read it more slowly and more carefully, at least my experience has been I found I didn't really understand what was going on at all. I hope that as we slow down this morning together and look at it, that uh, you'll find new ideas here that will be helpful to you, even if it's a story you've heard uh, many times. God used John to record this event in such a way that there's uh, multiple layers of truth being disclosed to us. We'll consider those today by looking through the story at three uh, movements. Uh, First, we'll consider what. Second, we'll consider what. Third, we will consider what. So that's what we're going to do today. First... We're going to look at what happened. So just the basic building blocks of the story. What took place? And it's weird. And then we're going to consider 
what it meant. What was the significance of this story? And then finally, we'll spend a few minutes together on what we should do uh, in response. So first, let's look at what happened. The disciples had gathered together in a room for what was known as Passover. If you're unfamiliar with Passover, that's nothing to be uh, embarrassed about. There's uh, many stories in the Old Testament that teach about it, so that first two-thirds of the Bible. If you turn to the second book in the Bible, the book of Exodus, and read through it, uh, you could sit down this afternoon and do that, probably in 45 minutes to an hour. What you'd find is the Passover was an event rooted in history in which God rescued his people out of slavery in Egypt and brought them in miraculous ways into a place of freedom. And what the Old Testament event of Passover, or the deliverance out of Egypt, was, was ultimately a a prototype of what the New Testament teaches us God's people have in salvation. So if you want to understand something of what God gives people when they become Christians, then read the book of Exodus, because it gives a graphic portrayal of God rescuing people out of slavery in Egypt, and today God's rescuing people something out of far greater significance. He's rescuing us out of sin. And so the Jews had gathered, the disciples had gathered for this Passover meal to remember, as they had likely done every year of their entire lives, to remember this great act of God in rescuing his people. Now John 13 these verses contain two essential things that happened. Uh, one is the washing of feet. I feel silly saying that. I've already done it last time, but still feel silly. The second is Judas's betrayal. In both cases, Jesus is doing something of a cleansing. In the one, he's showing the cleansing of sin, which we'll come back to in a minute. And in the other, he's showing the cleansing of the group from the betrayer. But let's just look at them briefly in that order. First, the the washing of feet. What happened? Well, the disciples were having this meal like they'd had many times before, but then all of a sudden, Jesus got up and he took off his outer robe and he put a towel around himself and he got some basins. And I thought about reenacting this this morning But that whole taking off the robe thing just troubled me, so I decided not to do that. But Jesus took a towel that would have covered up around his shoulder. And then he went down to each disciple kneeling next to them, and he washed their feet. He took a basin, and he took a pitcher, and he poured water from the basin over their nasty feet, and then he dried them with the towel, person after person after person after person. Now that is just downright bizarre to us. What's weird to us was unthinkable to the disciples. You see, feet are nasty. Uh, Ladies, you pay money to go have people dolly up your feet, but they're still gross. 
feet are feet. There's nothing you can do about it. But at this point, people wore sandals everywhere they went. Almost every single road was from, made out of dirt. And as people walked these roads, animals also walked these roads. Animals did back then the same things animals do now. So people walked on dusty, dirty, poop-filled roads. They walked for miles and miles and miles. It would rain. People would be lugging their carts. Food would fall. Disgusting. And so the normal act of hospitality was if you came to someone's home and you were welcomed to the home, particularly at a banquet, if you were welcomed into the home, then as you entered, uh, someone would wash your feet. They would wash your feet so you didn't mess up their house, but they would wash your feet as a sign of generosity, of, of love, of hospitality. But it wasn't the owner of the home who would wash your feet. It wasn't some other par- person who was there for the party who would take their turn and come early. It wasn't even the kids. They didn't get assigned the dirty job. It wasn't even the other Jews who might have lived in the home. The vast majority of the time, if you went to a banquet in the first century at a fellow Jew's home, your feet would be washed by a Gentile slave. Now, the whole discussion about whether that should have been the way it was is for another day. But that's what would happen. It was viewed as the most demeaning, belittling, disgusting task anyone could have. And yet Jesus got up from that meal, took the position of a slave, and knelt down and washed their feet. Outside of this moment, there is zero historical evidence of anyone in a status of being a superior washing the feet of an inferior. The only place we know that this ever took place was in Jesus washing the disciples' feet. It was completely unthinkable. Everybody knows people in power, people with authority, people who ought to be recognized as being in charge, they don't stoop to serve. They certainly don't stoop to serve as slaves taking on the most vile, disgusting of tasks. But that's what Jesus did. Now, the second thing that took place was the departure of Judas, the betrayer. If you've been with us, you may remember that we've already been told in the book of John that Judas, one of the 12 disciples, would turn on Jesus, would betray him. In John 6 and John 12, we see that in both of those chapters. But here, what's emphasized is not the fact that Judas, in and of his own free volition, decided to betray Jesus. That's true, and that's given emphasis in John 6 and John 12, that John betrayed Jesus because he was a Greek Judas. I did that last time. 
Judas betrayed Jesus because he was a greedy sinner who never really believed and followed Christ. But here, something else is emphasized, and that's the fact that this had been prophesied in the Old Testament, and that Judas both of his own free will chose to rebel, chose to have himself hardened by his own sin. And soon after this meal, he would leave, he would tell the authorities where Jesus was in exchange for money. And in that way, he betrayed his master. But here, we see that this was part of God's plan all along. This is another one of those cases that's baffling. How is it that Judas decided to do this very evil thing and is held responsible for it? And yet, God all along said, this is what will take place. I'm not sure, but there is no question that that is what the Scriptures teach. Both are true. People are responsible. God is sovereign. Somehow in eternity, those two things meet. Jesus was completely aware of what Judas was about to do. But notice a little detail that might have been easy to miss. As Jesus was washing the disciples' feet, there's no indication in John 13 that he only washed 22 of them. In fact, it seems very clear that not only did Jesus wash the 11, he even washed Judas, knowing exactly what was about to take place. Jesus knelt down by this man was about to stab him in the back, and he washed his feet. Friend, I don't know if forgiveness is currently a battle for you, but Jesus can enable you to forgive. Even the most painful, evil betrayal you have ever experienced, the Lord's will would be that you would pick up the feet of that person, even if that's only in your attitude toward them, in your lack of harboring bitterness, and by His grace, release them from the guilt that you would want them to cling to. Some of us need to hear that more than anything else I will say. Because what you are binding yourself to is not paying back the other person for what they did, but a tremendous loss in the experience of the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Because those of us forgiven by Jesus are the ones who extend it. Be careful to withhold forgiveness. Because if you do, friend, you're missing out on the wonderful experience of finding Jesus' forgiveness of you enough for you to extend it to others. Now, one other detail about Judas that might be easy to jump over is verse 18. Would you read that with me? I'm going to just mention this quickly, but I want to encourage you in the way in which you read the Bible just by in passing mention something. I am not speaking of all of you, Jesus said. I know whom I've chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. 
He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. As Jesus thought about Judas's betrayal, he didn't look at that moment and think, oh my gosh, I didn't know that was going to happen. He knew. He knew exactly what was going to take place. Why? Well, because the Old Testament told him. Because this event had been foretold. Because it had been pre-enacted. Now, if this is a concept you've never thought of before, it will be uh, perplexing, and you might think that guy is off his rocker. But just think about it and get together with some other brothers and sisters to talk it through. But Jesus knew that God was going to, through Judas, bring about this betrayal because something very similar took place in King David's life. And it took place in King David's life in order to point forward to Jesus. You see, the Bible from beginning to end is about Christ. And so if we read it correctly, and it'll take the rest of our lives to be learning how to do that. This isn't something that gets mastered. But if we increasingly learn what the Old Testament is doing, then we'll find that it's pointing forward to the beauty and the love and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That quote, it's likely put in quotations or, or cross-referenced in your Bible, comes from Psalm 41, verse 9. That phrase that references, He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. King David wrote this psalm very likely after or during the rebellion of Absalom. Absalom was someone who attempted coup in order to take the kingdom from David. Absalom was encouraged to do that and sort of spurred along, if you will, by a guy named Ahithophel. Ahithophel and Absalom failed. Their attempted coup was just that. It didn't work. Now, after the failure and when the guilt of all of that came crashing down on Ahithophel, guess what he did? He hung himself. Judas attempted to betray Jesus. And Jesus, as he looked back and thought on the life of King David, knew what Judas was going to do. You see, Judas, after he gave that money, and Jesus was tried, arrested, crucified, bore a tremendous amount of guilt and shame. And what did he do? He went out and hung himself. See, what, what Jesus is showing us is King David was a, a, an example, a type, a foreshadowing of the fulfillment of what Jesus would do. Down to even these little details, like who betrayed him, how, and what the result of that was. The Bible is an incredible cohesive whole. If you want to learn more about that, you should uh, pick up uh, one of the books in the bookstall. Anything written by a guy named Graham Goldsworthy would help to connect pieces like this. Plus, he just has an amazing name. Uh, but 
Gospel and Kingdom, for example, or God's Big Picture, written by another guy. These are excellent books for showing how the Bible fits together. Jesus is the Davidic King. He is the one God promised long ago who would come. So there's the betrayal, and there's the foot washing. That's essentially what happened. But let's think more together about what it means. I mean, what difference does what Jesus did with 12 guys and their feet? This is strange stuff. Jesus washed the disciples' feet for three reasons, and they're all very clear in the passage. Number one, Jesus washed their feet to show the full extent of his love. Look at verse 1. Now, before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. It seems that Jesus took the task that would have been understood to be humiliating, demeaning, only for slaves. Jesus... God himself, the creator of everything, stood up, knelt down, and showed his love by doing what the disciples would never have considered themselves to do. One detail we know from the other Gospels is that just before this event, in the same meal, the disciples had been arguing amongst each other about which one of them was the greatest. Which one would get the best seats with Jesus? Which one was better than the others? And maybe even as they were talking that ridiculousness, Jesus got up. He got up to show them how deep his love is for them. Christians, there is nothing more powerful than the love of Christ. If you have already been rescued by Jesus out of your sin and welcomed into his family, then there is nothing you have done, are considering doing, or will ever do that will be able to shake you free from the love of God. His love for you is vaster than you can imagine. It is deeper than your most painful struggle. It is more intense than your most haunting doubt. He is far more committed to you than you are to him. The love of Jesus is the greatest power for good there has ever been. His arms are around you, and he will complete what he has started in you. How do you know? You know because he stooped down and washed their feet. You know because the one that we have offended took the posture of being lower even than us and thereby showed the great extent of the love of God. Christian, you need no struggle No doubt, no trial, no suffering 
to cause you to question the love of God. Paul put it this way in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Another reason Jesus washed the disciples' feet was to symbolize the washing of sins. It was to, in a sense, in a very visible, demonstrative way, say to the disciples, I have washed and I am washing you free from the stain of sin. He was symbolically showing the cleansing that he provides. John was one of the disciples there at this event who had his feet washed in a way that would have shocked him. He was one of the disciples who had been chosen to come to know God. He's the one who wrote this book we're studying together. He also wrote another book, several others, but one of them is called 1 John. And in 1 John chapter 1, he says this, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us, that's the same word, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Maybe as John wrote that, he was remembering this event, that Jesus washes away filth. Friends, our greatest need is to be washed free from our sin. There is nothing more important that God will ever do for us than to cleanse us from the moral guilt and stain of sin that we hold. Only the sacrificial substitute of Jesus could do that. Let's think back for a moment to David. We talked about King David for a minute. King David had lived in many ways an honorable kingship. And yet one day he was up on his roof when he should have been out at war. And as often happens in middle age, he was not following through on the things he was supposed to be doing. Instead, he found himself in a time of ease. And so as he gazed out across the valley, he saw a beautiful naked woman taking a bath. And friends, anytime you're in a position of authority, you can either use that authority to serve and for the good of those under you, or you can use it to manipulate and dominate. And unfortunately, in this case, that's what he did. He called for Bathsheba, and she came. And despite the fact that they were both married to others, he slept with her. Bathsheba went home, and not long later, David got word that she was pregnant. So David, rather than being an honorable man, he called for her husband to be brought back from war so that everyone would think that husband went home to his wife and they enjoyed each other and that's why she's pregnant. And yet, he wouldn't go home. The husband stayed. And so the next night, King David's sin got even deeper. He said, I'll get that husband drunk and then certainly he won't be thinking straight and he'll go home to his wife. But even in his drunken stupor, he showed himself to be a more godly and honorable man. He didn't go home. And so just like our sin, as we dig a little bit and we don't fess up, 
then we dig a hole deeper and deeper and deeper. David ended up writing a letter saying, move this husband to the front line in order that he would be killed. That way no one will ever know. And he handed that letter to that husband. That husband left Jerusalem, traveled to the front line, carrying his death sentence. It's awful. David kept this concealed until he was confronted. Church, one of the most important things you and I do for each other is when we are aware of ongoing sin in each other's lives, that we love each other enough to say something. Nathan came to David and he said something. God used Nathan to break David. David, in response in this time of brokenness, wrote a psalm. And in part of that psalm, he says this, Purge me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. David knew. I have done something because I, in fact, am something. So dark, so deep, so awful. There is no hope of me being right with God apart from God. Choosing sovereignly, graciously, tenaciously to forgive me. Friend, if you're here today and you're not a follower of Christ, understand that although you may be clean on the outside, on the inside, you're full of darkness. The only way out, the only way to be set free is for Jesus to cleanse you. See, as he came and he, not long after John 13, died on a cross, He was given the punishment of death for every person who would ever follow Christ. And in that death, he was made to be sin, who knew no sin. In other words, he took the filth of all of God's people and died for it in order that all his cleanliness, his perfection, could be given to us so that from now on, All of God's people would be continually being washed clean by the goodness and the love and the holiness and the kindness of Christ. Do you need to be made clean today? You won't get it because you sit here. You won't get it by stopping something particularly egregious. It can only be given as you take the knee and pray for Christ to forgive. And he does. Jesus enacted this washing of feet to show that there is no stain that cannot be removed by his shed blood. Finally, Jesus performed this washing of the feet 
in order to call us to do something. Are you nervous yet? Look at verse 13. Jesus says, you call me teacher and Lord. You're right. For so I am. If I then, as your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, so also you should wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Brothers and sisters, our cleansing by the sacrificial Savior exemplifies the attitudes and the actions of all of God's people. Jesus' posture of washing the disciples' feet is supposed to be the normal course of action for all of God's people. Now, not literally, physically washing feet. Perhaps there might be some case in which this story is used by God to encourage you to literally, physically wash someone's feet as a demonstration of humility and love. But really when Jesus said, I've given you an example that you should do just as I have done, what he meant is to take up a posture of being willing to do whatever needs to be done for fellow Christians. We know that because from this point on, there is no record in the scriptures of people washing other people's feet. But there's tons of examples of Christians metaphorically, if you will, taking up the towel, picking up the basin, and loving each other well. The foot washing was not merely in the Bible to show the extent of the love of Jesus or to symbolize salvation. It is that. But it's here to model for us what ought to typify the relationships between brothers and sisters in Christ. And so we've said, what happened and what does it mean? But what do we do in response? Well, we wash feet. The New Testament is literally filled with directions with commands, with examples about how the brothers and sisters of the church should treat one another. God has designed the body of Christ to be the people among which the gospel is put on display, which means part of what we do is we be about the work of recognizing in each other's lives what are things we can do to serve and help each other congruent with the way in which Jesus has washed our feet. You see, we're to serve one another without regard for how it makes us look. We're to do whatever would bless. Think of the cases in the New Testament where we're told things like serve one another, love one another, forgive one another. Honor, outdo one another in showing honor. Show hospitality to one another. Bear with one another. 
show kindness to one another. Friends, these are the outworkings of the foot washing. And they're immensely practical. One way you might, in particular this week, think about working this out in your life is to think about one person in your church family that you could do one thing for without them knowing. Now, something kind. (laughs) Who is a brother or sister in Christ that you know has been interested in a particular topic? You could jump on Amazon and order them a book, have it sent to them anonymously. Who's somebody you know that's been sick with the flu? It's just everybody in the room. Would you pack up a meal, take it to them, and ring the doorbell about 6 p.m.? Who's somebody's car that is just more disgusting than the disciples' feet? You could go to their house and wash it. Who's somebody who's ill enough that they can't join us on Sunday morning? That you could wash his or her feet by going and spending an hour with them. And may in fact be anonymous because they may have no idea who you are. I'm serious. Friends, there are are an infinite number of ways we can love each other. I think the first rebuttal to this is, I'm too busy. And there might be a few people in the room that that is true for. But the vast majority of us have traded what the scriptures would tell us is real rest for something more like escapist recreationalism. And so we worship leisure instead of resting in such a way that it fills us back up that we might head out again to serve each other with kindness. So one of the great things you might need to do is let go of a hobby Go to sleep earlier, that there might be more energy to give yourself more tenaciously to caring for the needs of people. We are people enamored with doing things that will not matter for eternity. When the stuff that does matter is the feet-washing stuff, the serving one another in love. As a church... One of our distinctives is that we would be devoted to each other. So every time we do a membership class and people ask, what is this church about? One of the things we tell them is we want to be a church that's devoted to each other. We explain that in this way. I wonder, by way of conclusion, if you would read this aloud with me. As a local church, interdependent family of believers. We pursue genuine Christian living together. This can be reality because the gospel affects not just our relationships with God, but also our relationships with people. People who know Jesus can be in harmony with others who know Jesus. 
We are literally brothers and sisters in Christ who need and rely on one another. Friends, the experience of God's grace should continually lead to the giving of God's grace. How? Well, in this passage, it's simply by doing whatever we might not want to do in order to bless and serve, and in particular, to help each other grow up in Christ. It's as we do that that our witness to the greater community of Tempe will become stronger and stronger and stronger. Because the ways of the world are to watch out for yourself, to do what's best for yourself, to keep all that you have for yourself. But in Christ, we take up the towel because Jesus laid down his life for us. Let's pray. Father, help us to see that normal Christianity, normal church, normal life is a display of the radical love of God in the mundane service of everyday life. Help us to see that our habit of joyful servanthood will be directly proportional to our appreciation for being forgiven in Christ. Remind us today that knowledge is not enough, that there must be follow-through, that we are blessed in our growth in Christ only if we do these things. Now, sure, all of us have different levels of output doesn't mean that we'll all serve the same amount in the same ways. But God, for the members of Church on Mill, would you convict us today? Would you inspire us to understand how much we've been given in Christ? To feel the forgiveness and love and washing that Jesus willfully chose to give us. And in that love, may we be refreshed and renewed and recommitted to extending that love to each other with acts of kindness and to find tremendous joy in washing nasty feet. Father, we'd also pray for those here today who are Christians but haven't yet made a commitment to this church. Father, one of the great acts of washing feet they will ever commit is to say, I need a family of Christians in which I will commit to them to help them grow up in Christ, and they will commit to me. pray they'd humble themselves by coming to one of the elders or pastors, GC leaders, saying, help me know how to get connected. And Father, in particular, for those in the room who have yet to trust Christ, God, would you give them an awareness today of both their moral need and of the cleansing that is available in Christ. God, would you save even now as they turn from sin and trust you? Thank you that the sovereign Lord of all is the stooping, foot-washing Savior. pray this in Jesus' name.